0: And this is DataCast. Join me for all conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science.
1: Hi,
2: listeners. This is DataCast, where I hold long-term in-depth conversation with data and practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Astasia Myers. A partner on Quad Capital's enterprise team leading investment in machine learning, data infrastructure, open source, developer tools, and security. She focused on PreSeed, SID, and Series A. Prior to joining Quad, she was an investor on Redpoint's early stage enterprise team where she partnered with Dremio, LunchDarkly, Solo.io, Preset, Hex, Zero, among others. Before that, Astasia worked at Cisco Investment where she focus on cloud infrastructure, MA and investment, including Coercity, Datos, I.O., Elastify, Guardiaco, Springpart, as well as the funding of internal style project. So, Astasia, this is really my pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, James. I'm really excited to be here.
2: Fabulous. By way of introduction, I believe that for college, you went to Stanford University to study political science and international relations. And I also found out that you also spent some time conducting research at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. So yeah, could you mind sort of briefly sharing about your upbringing, your interest in international politics, and your overall Stanford experience?
1: Sure thing. I actually grew up in Silicon Valley and was exposed very early to technology and startups because my mother and our family friends actually worked in tech. She worked in the semiconductor industry, so truly the original Silicon Valley, and infused me an appreciation for how technology can be transformational and groundbreaking. I feel quite lucky to have her as a mentor growing up. I always found it really exciting, especially enterprise technology, probably through some of her influence, because it was like foundational and infrastructure was the bedrock in which other services were built upon. I was really humbled to have attended Stanford. It was for me a very magical experience. I was surrounded by many diverse perspectives and passionate individuals. You know, Stanford really fosters an environment of exploration and creativity. And during my time there, I wanted to fuse my passion for tech and international relations. So Mm -hmm. I conducted research on the role of information technology and economic development and politics. For example, during that time, it was the Arab Spring and the Iranian Green Movement. That work actually led to the creation of Stanford's program on liberation technology. So that still is a program today, and it's pretty cool to see how it's evolved.
2: I see. First of all, like, I'm curious, like, how does it feel like growing up in Silicon Valley? What was the environment? Do you surround yourself with?
1: It was Interesting because people, even back then, a lot of them didn't work in tech. You know, I grew up in Palo Alto and thinking about my childhood home, my mom worked in the semiconductor industry. On my right was like a partner at uh, yeah. Wilson Cincini. On my left was someone that was a VP of sales at a publicly traded company. And so it was kind of just in the ecosystem and ever-present. You would kind of know what your friends and colleagues, parents did, and it was usually in tech. And it was actually kind of cool because at that time it was a much smaller community, much more concentrated in the Bay Area that you would get to see a lot of the gadgets early that would eventually go more mainstream. I remember my mom worked on one of the semiconductors, which was eventually used in the Sony robotic dog that was all over the news in that era. So that was pretty cool that we got to see that when I was younger, before it was launched. So it was kind of just infused into everyday Mm -hmm. life.
2: Yeah, that's super cool that you growing up, you had that exposure to technology innovation and then get a develop the interest over time. And, and you to mention that in your answer, that Stanford is like a magical place. And I'm curious, how did you like actually interest in international relations specifically? Was there anything about, about interested in studying like global politics and all these things, even though you're growing up in a very like tech heavy environment?
1: Yeah, I can really thank my dad for that. I felt like I got the deep tech. From my mom, I got this penchant for travel and international experience. With my dad, he was actually a commercial airline pilot, and so he was always flying places. I feel like a lot of the time, I like grew up at an airport, like picking him up from work. We would go on a lot of family trips together, and it was really cool. You know, I was really humbled to even live abroad when I was growing up. So my mom helped manage some teams in Denmark. So we spent time there. You know, I did homestays in Japan because I took Japanese for a decade. You know, in college, I even lived in Mongolia for some research projects. And I always just love travel, love experiencing other cultures. And so for me, Understanding the relationship between technology and foreign cultures was a cool fusion of two different passion areas.
2: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context and, you know, stuff, this anecdote and how, like, you know, got the chance to travel globally growing up. And uh, I believe that, you know, at Stanford, you also spearheaded some of the original research initiatives in the U.S. and abroad at the Graduate Business School. In particular, you collaborate with Condoleezza Rice on a study called Soundly Leon Energy, hydraulic fracturing in Poland, which explore how to manage the political risk of using controversial energy extraction technology in the European Union. So can you talk about the motivation and purpose of your research with Professor Rice at GSB?
1: Sure thing. Yeah, I was really fortunate to get to know Condi when she returned to Stanford after her stint as the Secretary of State. It was her first year back, and she actually taught a course on international policy that I applied for and happened to get in. And so you know, we built a relationship over a few years, and she was very supportive of students exploring their passions. The research we conducted centered around this idea of political risk, the probability that a political action could significantly impact a company's business. Recall, this is the era when Google had just pulled out of China. Hydraulic factoring was on the rise around the world, and local actors were pushing back With globalization, more businesses were operating in foreign and frontier markets. And given my passion for studying how technology affected societies, it was interesting to reframe that work in terms of how political actors affected technology companies abroad. And so these could be an array of actors. They could be Twitter users or local officials or even hackers. These studies that we did were eventually published by Harvard Business School Press, and were used in Condi's political risk course at the Stanford GSB. And I actually even checked this morning and they're still online wow. on her website, which was pretty cool to see. That's awesome.
2: And for context, like, can you briefly define hydraulic fracturing for the listeners? Because I'm not sure everyone understands what that term means.
1: Yeah, so hydraulic fracturing is a technique for an oil and gas that includes injecting water, sand, and chemicals under high pressure into the bedrock to access the oil. And so it was slightly controversial because of the potential environmental damage.
2: Yeah, thanks for sharing context. Political risk of using that technology and potential way that environmental risk related to political risk.
1: Completely. Yeah, with you know, local community members or environmental. Activists. You can imagine that with this new technique of capturing oil and gas, there is often some tension. And so the research was really around the actors, policies, the laws that affected businesses doing hydraulic fracturing.
2: Yeah, perfect. Thanks for sharing that context. After Stanford, you spent a year in the UK getting a master in technology and policy at the Josh Business School at University of Cambridge. So how was your overall experience there?
1: Growing up in Silicon Valley and attended Stanford, I really wanted more exposure to how other communities thought about tech. I felt like I was in this bubble. It was like tech all the time. It was the majority of the people. In my life, operated in that field, and I wanted to go abroad and study how other communities thought about technology. Cambridge, also known as Silicon Fen, was the epicenter of tech in the UK at that time. Microsoft had research institutions there as well as. Other industry sponsored centers, you know, Cambridge's engineering school is really world class, and the area was consistently receiving some of the most venture capital money for early stage startups. It was also a cool time when the Raspberry Pi computer was just coming out from Cambridge. And so for me, it felt like an innovation hub. And the program I enrolled in allowed me to study how foreign governments thought about technology policy, how do you stimulate entrepreneurship, how do you support them in their journey, how do you construct policies that allow foreign investment So that was really nice on the policy side, but it also simultaneously allowed me to take courses at the engineering school, which is world-class. And so for me, it was a really nice program that allowed me to sit across two different institutions. And it was a great eye-opening experience of how the UK and broader Europe thought about technology.
2: Out from that learning from that year... How do you see the difference between the way that the UK slash European government affect technology development compared to like the US government?
1: Well, coming from Silicon Valley, it was a very mature ecosystem. You know, there were repeat founders who had exited their businesses and gone on to join venture capital firms or become angel investors. This idea of creating a business and receiving support from institutions or the community was pretty mainstream. Mm -hmm. And the government had traditionally supported academic research with financial grants. And so when I was in the UK, there was this history of government grants and support of innovative research across STEM, but the ecosystem around building and starting a company was more nascent and culturally, there was a different level of risk appetite. But I also thought was interesting is the legal regime um, that was in place made it harder for founders to start businesses, and just you know more paperwork, more work just to get going. And so it was interesting being on the ground there and talking to people who are really creative about starting businesses and how. Compared to the U.S., it seemed like there were more roadblocks in their way.
2: Yeah, I see. Thanks for sharing that context. You know, that's the political policy, legal regime, as you mentioned. It's harder for entrepreneurial initiatives to actually be born and grow. So you spent like about a year in the U.K., and then I believe that you returned to the U.S., and your first job out of school was working as an equity research analyst at Barth & Co., where you provide IT system and networking investment ideas and training insights to clients for a variety of companies. Yeah, can you just pretty walk over your experience at the first job?
1: Totally. I started conducting research at Stanford during high school and did it for nearly a decade. I personally just really liked distilling a, a lot of information into a clear thesis and leaning forward with conviction. I knew I wanted to continue to conduct research that was focused around technology and I thought that sell-side equity research would be a great fit because it you know combined my passion for tech but it added this business context which I got from Cambridge's business school and when I was there I covered publicly traded tech companies that were focused on enterprise but specifically IT networking security and cloud Businesses like Cisco, Palo Alto Networks, VMware, among others. The work was really analytical and allowed me the opportunity to become an expert, kind of resembling what I was doing in academia. And at home, my ability to evaluate a company and make a call on whether or not the business was fairly valued, overvalued, or undervalued. And it was just a pretty cool role because it encouraged you to think about what was going on in the broader ecosystem outside of just the company you were covering, and what was going to disrupt the business? What was the new technology innovation or go-to-market motion that was on the horizon? And consider this when you were thinking about the value of the business. At the time, I was able to do deep dives on evolving technologies like software-defined networking and storage, which at that time was a huge movement in infrastructure away from hardware appliance-based architectures to software running on commoditized hardware. I always liked thinking about the trends and trying to predict the future using data. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget covering VMware and then discovering Docker. It had been released within a year, and it was a huge threat, in my opinion, to virtual machines or VMs. And I went to some meetups to learn more. And I actually still own the T-shirts that I got at those meetups. They're quite old at this point, but I still learn them. And, um, you know... Subsequently to going to these meetups on Docker, I was at the VMware analyst day and the room was filled with hundreds of people Mm -hmm. and the CEO was on stage and he asked the audience, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Docker And I put my hand up, but was one of only maybe three to four people in this entire room. And I kind of realized in that moment, my passion for sleuthing out new technology, kind of going the distance to learn more about it and passion for what's next was special. And so I knew I had to go earlier in the tech company's life cycle than publicly traded companies.
2: I see. Sounds like that first role is really allows you to keep cultivating that ability to do in-depth analysis, conducting research, and then get a broader view of the whole ecosystem. But then as you keep doing more deep dive, you, you start like developing that preferences for new technologies. And that led to that urge to like going to like some earlier state company instead of just like, you know, the public company like you mentioned.
1: Totally. I think sell side equity research is a wonderful foundation It allows you to have domain expertise. For me, it was enterprise infrastructure and security. Mm -hmm. It teaches you ways to evaluate a business both with financial skills because you have to. I did four SEC exams and the CFA, but also understanding management teams and their aptitude, the technologies at the individual companies and how they fit into a broader ecosystem of alternatives to understand their differentiation, but also what trends in tech they are enabling. And then finally, it creates an opportunity to think about disruption at both a business model and technology perspective. And what I found for myself was I love thinking about What's next? What's coming? What's on the horizon? And naturally gravitated to focusing on companies that were earlier in their development lifecycle.
2: Perfect. Yeah. After two years at Baird, you then draw Cisco investment and you drove the cloud infrastructure merger and acquisition and some of the venture investment. So, yeah, I'm curious, today, what were some of the notable initiatives that you have facilitated at Cisco?
1: Yeah, so I covered Cisco at Baird, so knew the company and its product lines really well. We used to do buyer surveys, and people would always rank Cisco at the top across multiple categories, and I just really admired the executive team and the business they had built. Also, it was really nice is it was one of the most acquisitive tech companies of all time and was really well regarded for Executing and integrating acquisitions, it was considered a superpower of the business. You know, we used to joke that sometimes you could think of M and A as R and D for surgeon businesses. So we're kind of at the forefront of thinking about the future. And knowing that I wanted to do more hands-on work, working with startups, I reached out to the head of Corp Dev at the time and eventually joined to work with the largest business unit, which was the data center in CMEA networking team, which was famously led by MPLS, Mario, Prem, Luca, and Sony, who were very well regarded leaders at Cisco. And it was pretty neat. I had a sense of where the BUs were going for my research. I felt like I could hit the ground running. And Cisco is so special because it's super creative. I mean, they will use any tool in their tool belt to add value—from M&A to investing to joint ventures. I got to work on some pretty cool stealth projects that became product lines, like Cisco Titration Analytics, as well as venture investing in companies like Cohesity and Elastify and like GuardiCore. Cisco was kind of known for spin-ins, which is this concept where you essentially invest in a business and then you have a call option to buy it at certain price points based on milestones achieved. They were very famous for kind of inventing this framework. And I worked on one of those called Spring Path. I can't say enough good things about my experience at Cisco. I worked with incredible people. It's also a really special place because it's somewhere that is supportive of their employees and their next steps. It's a great location where you can learn and grow and find your path. And it has a truly incredible track record of other people from that team going into venture investing. If you think about, you know, Mike Volpe was on the same team at an earlier time than I was at Cisco. You have Arif at Lightspeed. You have Max at CRV. You have Bucky at Kleiner. Um, you have myself. It's pretty cool. The Cisco team, the Corp Dev team over there. Um, I just think the world of them.
2: Yeah, it sounds like Cisco Mafia taking over the venture. <laughs> we um,
1: may have, we may have a WhatsApp thread.
2: <laughs> and just a couple of notes on your answer. So, so as you mentioned, you have covered some a lot of the merger and acquisition initiatives. Just out of curiosity, like what are some of the learnings? in terms of like how companies buy each other, especially for like some of the earliest day startup, the concept of M&A is, is very long in the future. And so I'm curious, about here, the perspective given your exposure to a lot of these deals.
1: Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about acquisitions is the framework that acquirers use to determine the value of the business depends on the stage of the company. So I like to think about it as Three different buckets. One is like aqua hires, you know, people that are really gifted in terms of technology that you're hoping to add to the, your team that may have built some technology, but don't have a solid go-to-market motion or haven't exactly found product market fit. And those businesses are often valued based on the number of engineers on the staff and a range of certain amount of millions per engineer, right? Think about it as like very advanced recruiting in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, the second bucket are companies that have some traction and customers, usually in the range of one to ten million, and are valued in the context of publicly traded companies, precedent tr- transactions, and the immediate top line value that they could add to a business. Mm-hmm. And then the third bucket are the later stage acquisitions who, you know, have 10 plus million of revenue and could immediately be a standalone business unit, which was one of Cisco's M.O.s, which they would keep these large companies Siloed like Meraki or Jasper or AppD, so they could continue to have this amazing growth trajectory. And those are most closely valued in terms of publicly traded comps. And so that was really cool to see the different ways that companies were valued. And at the end of the day, it's all a negotiation. So it was pretty fun to work on some of those large acquisitions when I was there.
2: Yeah, fabulous. Thanks for. Categorizing those buckets of the m lifecycle, and so you did mention a little bit that you know you're working on venture investing at Cisco, and the organization also very supportive of the next step in the employees' career journey. So in early 2017, you joined Red Bull Ventures as a venture investor, leading investment across developer tools, cloud infrastructure, data infrastructure, AI applications, and cyber security. What about Red Bull's investment focus that attracted you to join the firm?
1: I really enjoyed my time at Cisco, but gravitated towards early stage venture investing. I really wanted to work closely with founders to help them achieve their dreams. And the corp dev role at Cisco, and it actually varies between companies, we were working on investing, M&A, sometimes partnerships, stealth incubations. And while I enjoyed the work, I really wanted to have focus on venture because when you're working on M&A, it's very exciting. I worked on very large acquisition opportunities that were considered transformational, like you know acquiring a business for over $3 billion. It's all hands on deck, which totally makes sense. You're running through models, you're running through business plans, and that can take you out of the venture market for six months. Six months in venture is a very long time. And so I naturally gravitated to wanting to work with early stage founders and be an enterprise venture capitalist. And so I decided to transition into traditional venture full-time and I became aware of Redpoint because they were an early investor in Spring Path, a business I had worked with while at Cisco. And they had a super deep domain expertise in enterprise technology, having invested in Juniper Networks, which I covered in self equity research and Aristo, which I also covered. They were early in HashiCorp and Twilio. And since Enterprise was my area of passion. I was super excited to work with other people that knew the domain inside and out.
2: Yeah, that sort of focus on enterprise and cloud infrastructure, something that you already cultivate domain I expertise in based on some of your earlier work experience, right? And this might be a, like a fun question, but I'm curious, like, you know, venture is, is somewhat, uh, especially for outsiders, startup or operators that I not know a lot about how, you know, venture works. So I'm curious, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the venture industry?
1: That's a great question. I feel like there's a, a lot of misunderstandings. One, and this is silly, I think people believe we we just tweet all day. <laughs> we don't. We do do real work, trust me. I feel like we <laughs> do a lot of deep research. We spend a lot of time with founders. We try to help our companies a lot. So it's not just funny memes, trust me. Two is, you know, venture as a financial instrument has evolved a lot. And the speed of innovation, similar to tech companies, has accelerated over the past five years. And so even the world of venture that I, at the time I joined Redpoint, is very different than the world of venture now. It has become more of a well-known asset class. There has become further specialization in terms of domain expertise and stage, the expectations around what a business needs to prove before each stage of investment from C to A to B has transformed over the past five years. You know, I do enterprise software and when I joined Redpoint, there was a sense of business had achieved over 1 million ARR and had 3X growth trajectory. That's not necessarily how we think about a high-flying business today. Often the business is earlier in revenue, but the growth trajectory is higher than 3X. I mean, it's qualified by their sales pipeline. And so if I was someone thinking about entering venture, I'd think about, I'd you know, clearly do my research of what venture is today mm-hmm. and get a sense of the different stages of venture and what makes you happy. Because the, what we've seen is on early stage venture, which is what I do, it's very much... Founder dream oriented uh, approaches to technology as compared to, you know, five years ago, it was hey, you know, you have a product that you can sell that maybe you can have customers onboarded to it. And so, if you are the person that loves data and financial analysis, you're probably more oriented to being a early growth investor, series B and beyond. But if you really like being a thought partner for, founders and noodling on the product and helping with early recruiting and customer development, you're probably an early stage investor.
2: Thanks a lot for sharing that context. And just on that note, do you have any resources in terms of you know books or podcasts or, or newsletter sites that you recommend for people who just want to uh, explore more about ventures in the industry?
1: Yeah, I think John Gannon has a great website that has collected different articles about venture, the role itself, the responsibilities, how people think about venture investing, and also has a list of jobs that are live in the market. So I'd highly recommend people who are interested to check that out
2: fact, Yeah. I'll be showing in show so people can check, take a look now. So you joined Red boy in sort of early 2017. So out of curiosity, as a new investor at Red boy, how did you prove your value upfront in potential deals and start forming your investment pieces?
1: I was pretty lucky because I had come from Cisco that was an infrastructure and security business. And then before that, I was in sell-side equity research covering those categories. So, after being in this domain for a few years, I had a pretty good sense of the publicly traded companies, the startups are trying to disrupt many of the startups that were, you know, series A, B, and C in particular domains from networking to databases to dev tools. And so I felt pretty lucky that I was coming in with an understanding of the market. I think. Some ways that people can get up to speed about categories are one clearly press releases and news either from TechCrunch or SiliconANGLE. Reading you know third-party research reports from Forrester, Gartner, and IDC we talk about macro trends and companies that operate in those spaces. Three would be blog posts from companies you're excited about or newsletters from, you know, well-regarded thought leaders like Pete at Data Council. So I feel like the best way to get up to speed on categories is just reading and reading and reading and through collecting all this information, distilling it into your perspective of certain categories of tech or trends that are emerging.
2: Yeah, and, and we we'll would definitely talk about some of that. Just you did a great job at like, writing a lot about some of these trends you said about over the long years. So it sounds like you did a lot of work to kind of releasing those learning for the public as well. Just on that note, you emphasize a lot on the importance of reading all these different sources. I'm really curious, like, how much time of your percentage why of, like, your job is actually dedicated to, like, just consuming external resources? That's a great
1: question. You know, I start every day reading the news and reading newsletters that have come into my email inbox. I would say on an average day, I probably spend about an hour and a half to two hours uh, sleuthing the internet, trying to find cool blog posts or like announcements of product releases or open source projects that have come to fruition. And then when you're actually doing diligence on a company, You know, I'm kind of the person that drops everything and does deep focused work. And so during a diligence process, it's, you know, can be 10, 20 hours um, in a very short period of time, you know, a week, even shorter days trying to understand a business. And so it varies, but it's a huge component of my work and the general role is especially at early stage, like staying up to speed on new products, new trends, new open source solutions. So yeah, if you're thinking about going into a venture, hopefully you, you really like to read.
2: <laughs> Publish. Yeah, let's investigate a couple of your most impactful investment at Redpoint. In the domain of infrastructure, you invest in the series A of solo.io and the series B of Lunch darkly. What are some of the key factors that uh, trigger you to make this investment?
1: First of both of these companies had incredible technical founders mm-hmm. at solo.io, Deep Levine, at LaunchDarkly, Edith Harbaugh and John Kudamal. you know, as an early stage investor, we really look for incredible founders who have a unique insight and vision for the future, who have a track record of execution and very strong domain expertise in their category and with each of these it was quite apparent with the founders new infra inside and out and for me it always starts with people you know we are our position is unique that we are supposed to be more than just financial partners but operating partners to a business and that comes through deep relationships with people to help them on their journey and kind of being all hands on deck to help them succeed. And so both of these companies had very compelling leaders. Another factor that was pretty neat about these two was in the case of Solo.io, they had a cool architecture innovation. Solo.io is an API gateway and service mesh startup. In terms of the API gateway, they were plugging into this new technology that was an open source project called Envoy out of Lyft. And so had a unique approach of doing an API gateway. For launch Darkly, they had C, it's a feature management solution allowing teams to more quickly deploy code in a secure manner. And LaunchDarkly's founders had seen the value of feature flagging at their respective businesses and saw that there was often a build internally or by decision that was being made. And they thought, hey, you know, this is generally applicable to a wide audience. We should go build a best of breed solution that enables people to do feature flagging effectively so they don't need to take internal engineering resources to build it themselves. And so they were very early market entrants into a very big space. And then the third factor that got us excited was these are very large markets. If you think about the history of API gateways, you know, you had publicly traded companies like F5, we saw that Kong, which was an alternative in this space, was valued over a billion dollars. And then, so we got very excited about solo.io because of the incredible founders, the unique technology advantage in the huge category. And then in terms of LaunchDarkly, every single developer can benefit from feature flagging, which is absolutely incredible. It, It accelerates development velocity. And so that's a massive audience that you can target. And when we were getting to know the team, we saw that demonstrated in their users. They had everything from publicly traded companies to, and I'll never forget this, like a dairy farm in Europe that was using them. And we're like, that's amazing. Like, it's very rare that an early stage business could have such a wide range of users benefiting from the product. And so... Just to summarize, it was phenomenal technical leaders with unique insight and hence drive unique technology differentiation and very large market that they could address.
2: Yeah, brilliant technical fathers, unique product strategy with differentiation in, in the case of solo IDOs, API gateway via service meshes, And in the case of Blanche is feature flag management, and then Large market size, total addressable market, and how you know this product can fit into that. Right. Totally. Yeah, I'm just curious from that part. Like, when you evaluate, uh, started to make investment, like if these three factors go hand in hand or depend on the situation. Was there a particular like bigger weight being put on a certain? That's
1: a great question. Yeah, I, typically these three buckets of team, technology, and market, mm-hmm. and as an early stage investor, I think it's you have to put more weight on team. People that have incredible technical skills with a unique insight and extreme drive often find a way they can hire and recruit and can build compelling technology and they can create markets. What's cool about LaunchDarkly in particular is that market didn't exist in the form it does today. They helped create that market through their commercial offering. And so market is important as an early stage investor, but teams are much more important.
2: Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, for early stage companies, a lot of them are going to be like category creator. And so it's like, you know, it's really about the of the founders to be able to like tell the story and be able to, you know, educate the potential users to from that new market. Right. Completely. And it actually apply a lot to what we're going to talk about next, which is really on the domain of data infrastructure, which I think, you know, it's it's, been, it's a lot of new categories being created in the past year or so. And and it might be exciting to hear some of your insights and talking with companies that are category creators. So you saw, you know, the Series A investment in HEX and the Series B investment in Preset. What about the products and the teams at these two companies that resonate the most with you?
1: Totally. Yeah, it was actually really cool. At my old firm, they were very early investors in Snowflake, which ended up being the largest enterprise IPO ever. And through watching that journey, we started to see this modern data stack emerge. And the modern data stack enables analytic and data exploration teams to answer tough questions. And it's a fusion of data pipelining technologies like Airbyte and Fivetran, data warehouses like Snowflake or BitQuery or Redshift. You can have metric stores, which is uniformly defined metrics to be standardized throughout an organization like DBT metrics or transform data. You have the transformation layer that allows analytic engineers to t- transform data to make it usable for end applications or BI. And in terms of hex and preset, we had this vision of like the interface for dashboarding and exploratory analytics would evolve. And so we thought they were very good fits into this modern data stack architecture. Mm -hmm. With preset, you know, we talked about Team, technology, and market. Preset is an open source BI and analytics solution. It was founded by Max Bouchman, who was actually the creator of Superset. And he decided to go and build a company around it. So we talked about team, that's great. Founder Market Fit, the creator of the open source project. Two, we thought it had a very interesting architecture because it was open source. It was being adopted by data engineers and data platform professionals. And we thought we could have it grow within organizations. And then three, in terms of market, you know, BI and analytics is one of the largest enterprise software markets in the world. We have many examples of large outcomes there from Google buying Looker, to uh, Salesforce buying Tableau. And so we thought Stellar Team, Unique Tech, Big Market, would love to work with this group. In terms of HEX, I was spending a lot of time thinking through the evolution of notebooks. And what I discovered was there's two different notebook audiences. There's the data analyst or data professional that. Really knows SQL and is like graduating to Python. And then you also have the deep data scientists and ML engineers that live and breathe Python and are building models to be deployed into production. In the latter category of the data scientist notebooks, you know, you've had Anaconda and the Databricks solution, and AWS SageMaker has one as well. But I was thinking, Heck, you know, that interface could be applied to a data analyst as well to make them more effective in exploratory data analysis. And HEX really stood out to me because it fused a SQL editor with a notebooking environment with the ability to build data applications for less technical people to explore data and create a data artifact. And putting this all together, they created a data workspace for teams. And so seeing this trend, the value of a notebook, implying it to this audience was very cool. And they had a very unique approach. And similarly, we, for the team, the founders were incredible. They knew data. They had worked together at Palantir in terms of the tech, it was very different. We hadn't seen anyone in the space take this unified approach to exploratory analysis. Mm -hmm. And then three, we also thought it was a new trend of the bifurcation of responsibilities between a dashboard and exploratory analysis. So Mm -hmm. dashboard being preset and exploration and deeper research being hex, and thought it could be a huge market that they could go after.
2: Yeah, thanks for sharing those, those great insights on its different criteria used to evaluate your investment in those. And and, and to know that Paul, you have written quite a few in-depth articles about data science notebook and data pipeline that I'll be sharing sure to in the show notes as well. First of all, here, you know, listeners to dive deeper into some of the reasonings behind what you just mentioned. And we definitely touch way on a lot of these trends on modern data stack as we move towards the end of our conversation. Before that, reflecting on your experience sourcing deals and sitting on the cup tables of many early-stage company, what Red Boy, what advice had you been giving your portfolio companies regarding hiring decision, pricing products, and navigating go-to-market strategy?
1: Yeah, each of those are really big categories. I think the most important one of those three for teams to focus on in the early stages, and I'm thinking, you know, seed stage, where I focus a lot of my time these days, is hiring and recruiting. It is a tougher climate to recruit engineers than ever before. Teams are being thoughtful and being more open to hybrid and remote work. Um, You can kind of see that reflected with the success of companies like Deal that enables payroll for remote employees. And often these relationships with early employees are built over time. So my three pieces of advice are, one, be open-minded to hybrid and remote work. They're incredible people all over the world who want to be part of a startup's journey and are eager to add value. Two would be identify companies that you think have technical talent that could be valuable for your team. Go and try to find people that have been at those businesses for over two years, reach out to them in the context that's very customized, that talks about their unique skill set and how they would be special for your team, and get to know them over time to build a relationship so that you are top of mind if they consider a new opportunity. And three, I would recommend spending at least 30% of your time focused on hiring in the early days. Since it's so important to the success of the business.
2: Yeah, fabulous. That's the make a of sense three-four. Uh, besides sharing, is there any other part you want to talk about product pricing and, and GTM at a high level?
1: I think it's really important to have a general sense of your go-to-market motion when you start your business. Traditionally, there has been tops down, which is selling to an executive and going through a traditional sales process. This is also transformed into a bottoms-up go-to-market motion where the individual makes a singular purchasing decision, usually after they have had a free trial or lightweight engagement with the product. And these two different go-to-market motions affect the sales cycle, the demonstration of value, and how you build your product. And so it's very important to speak to your users, your stakeholders of the product, and the buyers early in the customer discovery process Mm -hmm. to identify which go-to-market motion could be best for you.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I will touch on that idea of bottom-up adoption in a little bit. But yeah, thanks for sharing your perspective regarding hiring and and thinking about GTM for early-stage founders. Now, one thing that I really appreciate from you is that you have open-sourced a ton of comprehensive research in your Medium blog called Memory Lick on wide-ranging topics such as data science notebooks, data orchestration, data pipelining, ML data management, and so much more. So would you mind going over your typical end-to-end process of writing these primary articles?
1: Of course. And yeah, thank you so much for reading. As you can tell, I've always really enjoyed research. I've always really enjoyed writing. I think it's something that allows me to distill my own thoughts and express myself to a wider audience so they can get a sense of how I think and my analytical mind. My process for writing these primer articles first starts by engaging with founders It's really interesting. You can often see pockets of innovation that emerge at similar time horizons. And so if I see a collection of new technologies or technologies trying to solve a similar pain point, I start to take note of it and try to do a market map of every relevant company in the space and speak to all of them to get a better appreciation of the teams, their thoughts on how the market is evolving and the core technology differentiation of their product. Mm -hmm. I then go and speak with buyers and operators of this potential new technology, for example, data orchestration technology, which is adopted by data engineers or data platform leaders to get a sense of what do they value in technology, the ROI of adopting a new piece of tech and what they would need to see in a product to make a buying decision. And fusing these two audiences' insights with my own, I go about trying to highlight key themes, like why is there a market shift? What is the underpinning trend what would cause a user to pick one solution over the other. And then I try to make a prediction around what I think will be the winning platform or the evolution of the space. The writing process is not short. It often takes me about a month just to distill all the information and crystallize it. And publish it. But it's actually some of the most fun I have in my role because, as I said, I like trying to predict the future. I liked engaging people to hear their thoughts. And I like making it a community event because I often get people that write back to me or comment. And it's cool to have that thought partnership with a broader audience.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if you include those notes on the show notes, so my people can take a look and read more some future articles on this topic. And also, I suppose. Name of the blog memory leak?
1: Yeah, it's actually a technical term. Um, so memory leak occurs when a process allocates memory from the page or non-page pools, but does not have free memory. And so it's it's a technical term and it actually originated when I was at Redpoint. They're very deep enterprise investors and it's kind of just uh, stuck with me, but it is pretty fun. I, I like the name of the blog and... Hopefully, it's a good read for others. Awesome. Yeah,
2: thanks for sharing that. So circling back in go-to-market as a topic, you have often shared about this concept of product-led growth. So I'm curious, what are some of the typical challenges you have seen companies looking to incorporate product-led growth into their go-to-market motion?
1: First off, I don't think product-led growth is easy. You know, each type of sales motion can be hard. Traditional top-down sales is very consultive and high touch with buyers and can be very long. Product-led growth can be hard in a different way while you're targeting the end user. You need to build a product that very quickly shows value and solves a pain point point. And you also need to have very good understanding of how and why an individual uses it. One of the most interesting learnings that I've seen with product led growth is the role of product analytics, like businesses like Amplitude, um, of providing insights into product usage. Another example is actually using that product data to make informed engagement with potential customers based on where they are in their product lifecycle or triggering events that would make them a good candidate for a purchasing decision. And there's businesses, this category is often called PLG CRM with businesses like Endgame operating in it. The third thing that I would say is very hard about PLG is It's often a community-led sale. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of open source investing, which requires you to build a community around your open source project, include them in the creation of the open source and listen to them as part of usually a steering committee. And so when you are doing PLG, there's a lot of engagement with the individual and you need to make them an advocate and champion of your work because often people make, you know, community-led decisions. If I know someone who has referred me to this product and says good things, my likelihood of buying is higher. Mm-hmm. And so the grassroots approach to PLG can be very complicated.
2: Yeah. So like really focused on the individual users, understanding the needs, choosing the right product analytics, you know, PLG, CIM tools for the person, and then. Yeah, focus on driving community-led sales in order to support your Piaggio initiatives, right? And actually, that last part really lends itself so well to many questions. So, I think like in the past one or two years or so, like community-led growth is kind of going hand in hand with product-led growth, and you actually have been so sort of quite vocal about the rise of community as a mode for enterprise business. So my question is twofold. First of all, how do you see community as a fuel for product background? growth? Just kind of double down on your previous answer. And then secondly, what advice would you give for startup thinking about starting their community initiatives?
1: Yeah, I think the community has become the new pre-sales because people in the community are speaking on the vendor's behalf or negating the comments of the vendor. And so if I am a prospective user who has not signed up and I'm going to a community forum or I'm going to a Slack or Discord channel, I'm going to be reading how other people perceive the product experience. And so those community members are essentially... Acting as a pre sales team for vendors, even if they don't intend to. And so that's what I was saying before is like the focus on the individual user or community member is crucial for businesses and requires in the cast a wider net of engagement. And that's why you see the role of community managers and DevRel professionals come to fruition over the past few years, because they act as the champion of the user and they build trust with them. And it's not always about pitching the product. It's about situating the product within the context of the user's workflow or environment. So to me, community can actually be a competitive moat. We've seen that with businesses like uh, Databricks and Confluent that have very active, thriving open source communities you can also see this with closed source companies like launchdarkly that has a very well attended conference that they put on you know the more people who are actively committing code using the product speaking on your behalf and acting like as pre-sales champion the less likely that you know prospects will consider other alternatives
2: yeah for sure and also in that topic of like hiring dev routes and community manager, I think you also like shared a little bit about that as well. And I felt like, you know, a lot of the startup that building tools in data infrastructure is always looking to hire dev route and, and community manager. Do you have any uh, just general advice in terms of where to find these people? Also, like, was there any distinction between hiring for this role for open source versus for enterprise uh, for like SaaS solution?
1: Yeah, I think that A great DevRel individual is someone that has a technical bend to them. They could be an engineer, they could be a technical writer, they could even be like customer engineering, but someone that can relate and empathize with the end user and, you know, translate their needs into technology. So there's One recommendation that I've had with founders is to like go on LinkedIn and find people that may not have DevRel in their title today, but exhibit those personas. Mm -hmm. Two is clearly finding people in an open source community that, you know, are deeply passionate about the technology and having them become advocates for it as part of your business And then three is going and uh, identifying great like DevRel newsletters, like DevRel Weekly that has a community of DevRel individuals and does, can post jobs. And for me, like the DevRel leader is a little different between traditional like closed source SaaS and open source, because in the open source community stance, you need to encourage them to like contribute to the open source Mm -hmm. and uh, demonstrate their conviction in the technology. And that's just not fundamentally what happens with a commercial SaaS product. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of the role is very similar. It's like being the voice of the user, translating their needs into product and sales. Positioning as a thought leader within the domain, encouraging their contribution if it's open source, managing their expectations of the product. One or two hacks that I thought was really cool, because I know a lot of people are like, oh, how do I launch a Slack or a Discord channel, is if you're an early stage founder, like set up a Slack or Discord with each of your design partners and also have like, Enable the central thread so they can ask general questions. Mm -hmm. This also helps because when you make it more public, you already have content in there. So prospective users aren't landing on something that's completely vacant. And I would also encourage teams to try to get on a weekly content cadence to start to build brand and reputation as a thought leader, that can also bring people into your community because they will go to you for advice about not just your technology, but like the general space you're operating in.
2: Yeah, thanks for sharing those valuable perspectives. Like having uh, consistent content kind of as well as, you know, uh, working with your design partners to facilitate, kickstart the initial fire for the community, right? And especially in the context of open source, Circling back into your career, I believe that besides investing via traditional venture firm, you're also an Android investor. Most specifically, you Android invest in the Series A of AirBite and Superbase, and both of these company are open source business with very robust communities, I believe. What advice could you give to a smart, driven operator who wants to explore Android investing?
1: This is such a good question because I was actually getting asked this by a VP of engineering that I work with this week. So it's very, very relevant. The first step is just simple. Just tell people you're interested in angel investing. If you are at a late stage company or an early stage startup, Tell your friends, tell your peers, tell the people that are on your board. Hey, you know, I'm really excited about angel investing. Here are the three reasons why. Here are the three reasons I think I could be additive to the team. I have superpowers around community development. I have superpowers around how to build and scale up an engineering team. I have superpowers around creating cohesive team cultures. So start by telling people you are interested. The second step, I would say, is building some type of personal identity or brand as an angel investor, leveraging uh, your superpower. And so you can do that through social media or content marketing like blogging or even podcasts like this, Um, just sharing out advice around particular topics. Or two, providing insights into technical shifts you think are emerging. The third step that I would suggest doing is going through Crunchbase and looking up companies that you admire, that you wish you were an investor in, and see which other investors or angels are part of of the cap table and then reaching out to them directly to build a relationship. Something as simple as, hey, I really admire the work that you've been doing and that you work with this business. I think business X is very cool for these reasons. I'd love to learn more about what got you excited and any advice you have about me becoming an angel or potentially me working with you on angel opportunities. So it's pretty fun being an angel investor and so, I encourage others who are interested in to kind of think through the three steps I suggested.
2: Yeah, just telling people that you want to enter invest, identifying your superpower, and then reaching out to more experienced investors investor who you admire, and then just mm-hmm. gather more advice and insight, things like that. And I, I believe, like especially in the context of you, your superpower is probably like along with the lines of writing under block as well as you know, thought leadership and experience working in VC. That's probably like a huge, probably added to a lot of these fathers when during the fundraising. The process i suppose totally. perfect stepping back again into your career and talking about your current journey so since september of last year you've been the founding partner at quad capital sitting on its early stage enterprise team and leading opportunities across preset seed series a and series b what urged you to make this career transition of founding your own venture fund yes
1: it was totally awesome being part of the Red Point team, they are fantastic working with Satish and Scott, uh, Tomash and Alex over there. For me, I kind of got that little bug that founders do. You know, I was engaging with all these founders who had a big vision, who were trying to change the world, who were going zero to one. And for me, I really wanted to have a little bit more of that operator experience and empathy with the founder. And so I got really excited about Quiet Capital because it allowed me to fuse together my learnings from Cisco and Redpoint and my own perspective of what modern venture looked like to go build and scale up a VC fund and you know contribute to the tools, processes, hiring and decision making of the firm. And it's been really awesome. It's pretty cool we are all vertical specialists over here. So I lead the early stage enterprise practice and we have others that focus on crypto and healthcare and fintech and it's exciting to leave a fingerprint on an organization and a little bit of a legacy mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley.
2: Yeah, that sounds super exciting. And so at Quad, you also invest in, you know, in some of the similar enterprise sectors from your previous career at the Nexus, I uh, mean Infrastructure, and cyber Security, right? And, you know, we did talk about this uh, earlier in the conversation, which is these three categories of people, uh, product, and, and market, you know, as usually the main typical uh, mental checklist that you use to evaluate these early-stage companies. But right now with Quad Capital, how did your mental checklist for that you use evolve over time?
1: Over my investing journey from public markets to early growth to early stage, and now I'm like truly venture doing a lot of pre-seed, seed, seed, and A, Mm -hmm. I've become ever more focused on people, their technical aptitude, their market fit, their unique insight, their grit, their make anything happen attitude. And so for me, I spend much more time getting to know the founders, what motivates them and makes them tick, trying to dream the dream with them about what could evolve from their business and what they want to be known for. And so for me, my mental checklist of those three buckets is people first, technology second, market third. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's important to have a very good understanding about what technology they're building, what is the differentiation, what is it going to enable for a user or a business, what is the ROI on adopting this tech, and then how does it fit into the current technical architecture, or is it enabling a replatforming, But incredible people find a way. And I'm more driven than ever to meet with and get to know early stage enterprise founders that are trying to disrupt their category or, to your point earlier, build a new space because they see something that other people don't.
2: Fabulous. It Sounds like throughout your career you go earlier, earlier, earlier to these different personas that made up the venture ecosystem, right? To that point, vice versa, how have you been navigating the process of fundraising from potential limited partners for Quad Capital?
1: Yeah, so we have closed our fund, which is very exciting. You know, LPs can be a range of different personas they could be high net wealth individuals, they could be pension funds, they could be endowments or sovereign wealth funds. And so we have a mix. It's very fun like having those conversations with LPS and sharing out what we think modern venture looks like, the fact that each of us on the team have respective domain, Expertise, which helps with recruiting and go-to-market guidance and early product feedback. So it's been a lot of fun.
2: That's interesting. You mentioned the term modern venture. How do we defy modern venture? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, from my perspective, you know, the role of the traditional Series A fund has evolved. We see them going earlier to seed and pre-seed. We see traditionally growth funds becoming early growth or going even as early as A. We see crossover funds going all the way down to seed. And so for me, modern venture is a reflection of flexibility. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that was very exciting for me at Quiet was while we prefer to lead, we're open to being complementary capital and getting to know founders deeply, adding value and building trust, and then continuing to support the founder through their entire journey. And so we like to build a relationship and then bring to bear 50, 100 million of capital for those next stages of growth. And the flexibility to do that is pretty exciting. Most series A funds will only lead. They'll lead the round and take perata, but there isn't this continuous support of the founder. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty exciting to me.
2: Yeah, definitely. make makes a lot of sense, like be along with that father journey from Precise to, you know, even pre-IPO, which is definitely exciting. And then that different tech well, that, that a lot of fathers are going to appreciate. So finally, I would love to probe your insights on new trends in the data and ML infrastructure. What trends that you think will have a disproportionately huge impact in the future? And vice versa, what trends that you think are overhyped?
1: Yeah, one trend that I'm super excited about right now is this idea of data-centric machine learning. You know, 10 years ago, it was only PhDs doing like Bayesian modeling for ML. And since then there's been an evolution and a democratization of machine learning to a data scientist, even towards an analytics engineer. And with that, evolution, you have more open source models that someone could take down, retrain and rebalance the weights and deploy into production. And so the algorithm development has become less challenging for an average use case. Of course, there's crazy stuff going on in NLP with GPT-3 or Cohere. But for an everyday data scientist or a team that are trying to do a recommendation model, there are resources available to you. And with that, the emphasis goes to the data layer, which people are calling data centric ML, where the capturing, labeling, balancing of the data to understand which data. Hurts, helps or has no effect on the model training. And then looking at the edge cases of the data in production to trigger retraining or understanding data drift becomes incredibly important to the ML development cycle. And so I'm very excited about technologies like Unbox that helps with ML data debugging and data quality. To help enable teams to more effectively use data for ML use cases,
2: definitely. Under the part about data-centric ML, I think other this year you wrote this tweet that basically said data-centric ML mirrors the standardization on the modern data stack for BI and the adoption of data quality tools. I'm just curious, how do you see the similarities and dissimilarities between the machine learning infrastructure and the data infrastructure categories?
1: Totally. Yeah, when I think about the like BI analytics stack. There are great data quality tools there like Monte Carlo that I've worked with that look at the data warehouse and null values or changes in data distribution. And it's very data center centric. The difference with ML data quality solutions is they actually look at the training data, which may not always be in a cloud data warehouse, Mm -hmm. They tie to the framework and model and they can do embeddings to understand clustering of different data sets and highlight edge cases or mislabeled data. And what's also very different is they can tie into the model in production to understand edge cases or data drift. And so the points of integration, the workflow and the end user. Is very different between Monte Carlo style analytics data quality and machine learning data mm-hmm. quality solutions.
2: Yeah, that made a lot of sense. And you actually written a lot about some of these ideas in your primer on ML data management, am I correct? And then, so definitely, totally. the show. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Stasia, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, Name three people in the venture community who's what you admire.
1: No, I have to give a shout out for some of my old teammates, Satish Damaraj and Scott Rayner are absolutely incredible investors, leaders, and most importantly, people. They've done incredible work and I was really honored to work with them. And so those are two. And the third person in the venture community, I want to give a big shout out to is... My friend Robbie over at Cowboy Ventures, like myself, you know, she does incredible work around dev tools and open source. And so I have a lot of respect for her.
2: Absolutely. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate better foresight.
1: You know, it's interesting I don't read books as much anymore. If I was going, if you care about dev tools and you want to get better insight into what's going on, definitely check out the News stack. I think it's a, a great website and um, that publishes really relevant news.
2: And then finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage venture capitalists on Twitter. What would you tweet about?
1: Probably say something like, how about those public markets? Am I right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, fabulous. I think that's a great way to end a conversation. So, uh, Astasia, I really enjoy, you know, learning about you today. Uh, starting with your upbringing in Silicon Valley, your time. I'm studying policy in international relations at Stanford. Some of your research with Condoleezza Rice at the GSB School. Your early career, working at Bain, Cisco Investment, learning a lot about uh, M&A acquisition and the equity sell side of the venture ecosystem. Your foreign intervention capital, working at Redpoint Ventures, investing across domains such as climate structure, debt tools, AI application, cybersecurity, various threats of advice regarding hiring decision. Navigating go-to-market strategy, as well as draw process of processing some of the investment thesis that you put on on your And block, and then very exciting to hear about your current journey with Quad Capital and how you know you guys are bringing the modern venture image into the world. And I'm excited to learn more about some of your investment in the upcoming months and years. So. And so I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes. So listeners can have a chance to kind of take a look, read some of the articles written by Astasia, and then, you know, follow her on Twitter and LinkedIn and see some of her prediction and trends and advice if they're interested. So, yeah, Astasia, I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you have a fabulous
0: rest of your day.
1: Thanks so much for having me, James. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Hopefully, uh, we can do it again sometime and it was useful for the audience.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.